You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to episode number 90 of the Team Guru Podcast. My name is David Frizzell and today... We're talking about one of my favorite things, working in a team. It can be one of those professional joys, rewarding, exciting, caring, personable. But too often, for too many people, working in a team is not a utopian experience. For many, working in their team is a nightmare. Difficult, stressful, confusing, and bleak. And if you are or have been in a team that struggles with the various team dysfunctions, you'll know how much of an impact it can have not just on your professional life, but life in general. Being part of a dysfunctional team brings with it stress and anxiety that doesn't stay within the confines of the office. It follows us home, it impacts our family, our social life, and our mental health. Unhealthy teams crush productivity and creativity, and they affect us personally. But help is on the way. Rose Bryant-Smith and Grevis Baird are the authors of a new book, Fix Your Team, the tools you need to rebuild relationships, address conflict, and stop destructive behaviors. It's chock full of fantastic insight into the way teams work, the common things that can go awry, and most importantly, of course, the things that we as leaders can do to fix them. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rose Bryant-Smith and Grevis Baird. Rose Bryant-Smith and Grevis Baird, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Wonderful to have you both on the show. You know, this is the only the second time in 90 episodes of the Team Guru podcast that I've spoken to two people at the same time, can you believe? So you're number two. We like being number one, Dave. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. When, <laughs> I, when I said that the first time we'll around, silver. they were so excited that they were the first one. So I'm <laughs> sorry that you can't be first, but you're pretty That's close. Right. Now, you guys are team experts, which is fabulous because this is a leadership podcast. And if leaders aren't leading a team, then what are they doing? I want to hear that we're going to get started with a general discussion about teams, but eventually we're going to get to your 12 fabulous common situations you describe about what causes team dysfunction. And I know that the leaders are going to hear all of those 12 and think of experiences that they've had where they can, that they know that that's happened to them. Hopefully they're not experiencing all 12 right now, but before we get there and you guys are going to tell some great war stories and we're going to talk about how to fix some of those common dysfunctions. But before we get there, I really want to talk about this concept of just being in a team. It's almost something that we take for granted at work. We talk about teams so much. We all know we should be good team players. It's all about the team, team this, team that. But the reality of the world is that we are rewarded, assessed, promoted, employed, all of those things fired as individuals. Our working hours, our permanent status or not is all given to us as individuals. Yet 
we're told time and time again that we've got to be in a team, we've got to be a good team player, and we've got to enjoy it. How well does that dichotomy play out in the workplace? Is Am I onto something there that doesn't really matter? Or is that an actual thing that rubs people up the wrong way in workplaces? Look, I think you're right. It absolutely is a thing because the employment contract at its heart is an individual contract mm. with you and the organisation, mm. which is you know usually a big legal entity. And yet you need to report to someone as your manager and you need to rely on, cooperate with, collaborate with and work quite closely in most jobs with a whole lot of other people in order to be able to perform. And I think that's where a lot of the tension can come. Absolutely. So what about you, Gravis? Do you think we would ever be, is it an ambition if we're going to be truly good at being in a team that we should be employing teams of people together rather than individuals and slapping them together, that we should be promoting and hiring and firing on a team basis if we really want people to be fabulous at being in a team? Well, I suppose that could possibly be the way forward unless you take into account the fact that we're human beings. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're not robots. We're not widget makers. Um, We are human beings. And I suppose what's fantastic about when teams work well is that they – I can use the word symbiotic. I mean, they all, it all hangs together in a really constructive, healthy way. Teams create, dare I say, that fabulous HR buzzword, culture. Mm. Uh, and then culture then defines the team. So there's a whole lot of things that happen on a micro level every day in a team between human beings that one can't just simply, you know, whip up out of, out of nowhere and, and suggest day one, nine o'clock, Monday morning, you are now a team. Mm. We have selected you from around the world and you are going to be the team that does this. I mean, that usually only happens in sort of, you know, I don't know, sort of Marvel comic uh, films. Back in the real world, basically, I think what I'm trying to say is human beings come together, they work in various workplaces, and over time, they understand, they use their emotional intelligence and they then comprehend what is going to be the most constructive and positive ways in which they can support each other to get the work done. And so I think, yes, whilst it might be in some managers' minds perhaps a bit of a wish to say, oh, I wish I could just get rid of this team and employ a new team next Monday morning and they're all fabulous and new and it's all bright and shiny. I think actually the reality is that any team, it takes time for any team to get to know each other and that fabulous expression, you know, no, was it norm, norming, forming, storming, <laughs> yeah. performing? Yeah. I'm not sure I got in the right <laughs> phraseology, but that's what happens with teams. And yeah. so I think actually, yes, whilst, whilst I'm initially attracted by your theory, I'm not sure whether it would always work well in reality. <laughs> if I could add to what Greva said, though, David, I think this highlights how important recruitment is. Mm. And while we know that there's no 100% confidence that we can ever have in a new recruit, what your point raises is the importance of making sure that if we're going to add someone to a team, that they're going to nudge the team's culture in the right direction and that they're going to be either a good fit if we're happy with the way the team's currently operating. We don't, we don't want to sort of change the balance or, you know, rock the boat, if you like, by adding someone who's not going to work well with everybody else um, who's already part of the team. But also if we wanted to, for example, make the team a bit more innovative or a bit better at solving complex problems, perhaps one of the things we might need to take into account is diversity of background, thought, and in fact, just the diversity of that person, given that that's been shown to to really uh, mix up and in a good way, any sort of established repeat patterns of thinking that might in fact be holding the team back. 
Diversity in a team is certainly a good idea for, for, for lots of reasons. Innovation of thought being one of them. You know, that it's almost a throwaway line in CVs and resumes, people to say, I'm a good team player. And it, it means nothing written on paper because either everyone says it or it just sounds so empty. But it's actually a really important professional skill for all of those reasons you just talked about. We are hired and fired as individuals, yet there are all these human frictions that exist within a team dynamic underneath the weight of expectations that teams have placed on them. So being a team player and really meaning it and knowing what that requires and what that takes personally is a really strong attribute of a professional. And I guess those 12 frictions, uh, that those frictions that exist within a team are why you guys have been able to come up with your 12 common situations of dysfunction because it is such a dynamic environment made up of those frail beasts called human beings. That's right. And I think what I would ask of the person, if I was interviewing someone who'd said they were a good team player on their CV, I'd ask them with a very open mind, what do you actually mean by that? Because some people who say I'm a good team player, they might mean I follow the norms in the team right now and I never question anybody Mm. and I'm not going to call out bad behavior when I see it. I'm just going to play with the herd, if you like. Someone else might say, well, I mean by team player that I look for the skills and the, the, the contributions that individual team members can make. And I look to cr- help create an environment where everyone can bring their best selves to work. Everyone feels like they can engage in healthy challenge, conflict, debate, toss around ideas about what are some great new ways of doing things, etc. So someone, one person's idea of what a team player is might be very, very different to another person's. And we uh, had a meeting with a CEO of a medium-sized organization earlier this year who um, was having a conversation with me about, well, I just really want the team to be more innovative. I feel like we've lost our competitive edge and and I'm not quite sure how we can get there. And I said, well, can you describe the culture of, of the company that you have? And he said, oh, well, we all, you know, we all sing from the same hymn book yeah. and we, we've all been around for more than mm. 20 years. He was so proud of the history and the consistency of the, of the way they'd done mm. everything. Exactly. Mm. The mm. sameness for mm. him was a real strength. <laughs> and look, in, Yet he was th- craving innovation. Be, that's right. So he and, he and yet he couldn't quite see that in fact praising history and praising we've always done things this way that's the way we've mm. always done it around here which we hear way too often I have to say as an excuse for you know racist jokes or sexualized culture and other real nasties but this guy couldn't see that in fact what he was seeing as a strength in the team was actually really holding them back and the the sameness or as we call it in the book white bread you know a real lack of diversity um I meant that, was that quite they, brave they actually for you to use that term white bread why well i mean because it just goes straight to race doesn't it well yeah look i mean race is a big part of, of i think the lack of diversity and lack of appreciation of skill and what each of us brings in australia dare i say yeah. um but of course you know we meant to we described the diversity in the book uh, meaning uh, you know all sorts of diversity. Where, you know whether it be you know sexual orientation, whether it be gender, whether it be cultural background. Age is a big thing, I think, as well. We tend to have this assumption that older people are on their way to retirement. Dare I say that you know women in their thirties are going to go off and have babies, or that somehow younger people are going to be really great thinkers and really terrific at IT. Yeah. None of those things are necessarily true. No, that's and in true. fact, people really waste opportunities as well as potentially breaching the discrimination law if they make those sorts of assumptions. 
Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. I'd also say in terms of that issue about, yes, I'm a good team member. Yeah. And this goes, I suppose, to best practice recruitment is not just ask the individual themselves, but, you know, have them shadow the team, have them be involved in team activities for a half a day or a day. See if the team likes them. Absolutely. See if they, you know, what's their response Mm. um, organically or not to this individual who's now in their environment and and how do they assess um, that individual's interactions and also get a sense from the team overall where they think this person's uh, strengths and, and weaknesses and whatever might lie. That's an ideal recruitment practice, isn't it? But how many of your clients have the luxury of that time and space to be able to do mm-hmm. that? Well, I mean, usually if you'd ask a candidate if they're that keen, yeah. they're, they'll agree to doing it. Yeah. You might need to explain exactly what you're going to be assessing because, of course, it's it might be a bit nerve-wracking otherwise. Yeah. But, you know, we have seen quite a few clients who've given that a go. The key is, of course, you need to put your money where your mouth is. If the, if a team members come back to you and say, look, we just don't think it's going to work, to back that. Because, of course, if they've given you that message mm-hmm. and then you, you put that new recruit in anyway, um, you're really setting them up to fail. Yeah, well, that's a good even first tip before we really get into the juice of this. When someone in a, in a recruitment process says, I'm a good team player, that's really probe what they think that means because it is so important. It is almost as important. I mean, you could argue in different situations, it's more important than the technical skill you're bringing because being part of a team can go so well and it can go so badly, which of course leads us leads us to your 12 situations that cause team dysfunction. Look, I read these and in your book, and I was just doing a whole bunch of nodding, really enjoying the way that you have characterized these and and summarized them into the 12. Now, I'm going to run through all 12. And for listeners, the next thing that's going to happen is that Rose and Grevis are going to talk about at least one each, that one of these dysfunctions that they really like talking about, and they're going to describe it for us. They're going to tell us some great stories about what they've seen. But most importantly, they're going to talk to us about how as leaders we address them. Now, the ones that we don't get to, of course, you can find them in their book, which we'll link to and, and talk about as we go. But So here we go. I'm going to run through all 12 and then we'll mm-hmm. come back. Who wants to start when we when I finish this going through their uh, their favorite? Who's going to start? I will. Oh, good on you, Grevis. All right. So here it is. Number one is gossip culture, cruel conversations. Number two is unprofessional conduct when bad behavior goes unchecked. Number three, toxic personalities. I really like this one, toxic personalities, because there's a whole bunch of different types of toxic personalities. One bad apple can rot the whole barrel. Number four is personal crisis, someone who is struggling. Number five is workplace romance. Keep it professional. Wouldn't mind getting your thoughts on that one later as well, actually. Number six is family ties, the specter of nepotism. Number seven is lack of diversity and inclusion, the risk of white bread workforce, as we've discussed already. Number eight, unresolved historical issues, those skeletons in the closet. Number nine, the manager's style. It's not the team, it's you. Number 10, unhealthy competition. A winners and losers situation. Number 11 is no clarity, no accountability, the path to complete chaos. And lucky last, number 12 to round out the dozen is overwork. Team being stretched, presenteeism, that term we've heard a a number of times on the podcast and the 24-7 paradigm. That's quite a mouthful. Thank you for your patience Mm -hmm. there, everybody. But I thought it was really important we go through them because they are 
fabulous. They are real. We've all seen them, have experienced them, know that they happen. So what's it going to be, Grevis? Which one are you going to talk us through first? I feel like we're doing sort of pick a box. Yeah, or, you it know. is a bit. It's like a game show. I'll it's a game show? I'll tell you if you're right. Excellent. Well, I'm going to choose Chapter 9, The Manager's Style. <laughs> oh. It's not the team, it's you. Ding, ding, ding. Correct, Grevis. That's the are. correct answer. Like, Excellent. I like it's it, a mate. free car. That's a really good one. And actually, I wondered about the order that you put them in in your book. Was there an order? Because I thought that was such a really – that was such a chunky one that it kind of – it had a role across all of them in a way, but there it is sitting sitting there at number nine. Was there any logic to that or is it just a, an order? Well, I suppose we didn't uh, want to um, you know, go in, dare I say it, too hard, too hard um, against manager. those managers okay. who may be less than ideal. And perhaps it may be that whilst exploring some of the earlier chapters, they start going, yeah, you know what, there are a few toxic personalities. Or you know what, there is a bit of uh, lack of diversity here. Mm, I wonder whether... I might, you know, penny dropping moments be possibly partly responsible for the culture that I'm, you know, wading through or sinking in. Probably not, because if they're such a bad manager, they probably have low levels of self awareness anyway. But anyway, let's let's talk. On, I won't I won't steal your thunder. Tell me, Grevis, why did you choose that out of the twelve possibilities? Why is that your favourite? Because often when people asking us to conduct a workplace investigation or a culture review or just say, you know what? We're just a bit concerned about that team and we're not quite sure how the manager's going. They're pretty quiet about their team, but whatever it might be, often when we chop it in, it becomes pretty clear, regardless of whether the manager is the respondent to the allegations of bullying or sexual harassment or regardless of whether the culture review is because there's been a bit of noise over some time about management style, whatever it might be. It's so often, dare I say it, and sadly far too frequently, often part of the mix with these dysfunctions, and they, as I probably indicated before, they don't come in isolation. Often one of the key factors is actually the manager's style or lack of appropriate workplace dispute resolution skills that are driving or encouraging all these other types of dysfunctions to fester, to escalate and to really affect the overall team's uh, functioning and healthiness. So what do you see? What's the what's a common kind of a terrible manager, someone who is running their team into the ground or creating a toxic workplace culture? Mm-hmm. Have you got little categories of bad managers that you see or is everyone different? There are a few, I suppose, key themes that run through bad management uh, style. So for example, yes, the aggressive, you know, let's push through to Stalingrad at all costs, um, you know, chew up. Everyone um, loves working for someone like that. Oh, um, a joy. You know, you you get up on Monday morning and just go, I must run into work and be, you know, (laughs) moan down again. Uh, I really, you know. I love that. Just to get that masochistic feeling. (laughs) Resilience. That's right, builds resilience. So, yeah, that that really terrible, I mean, dare I say it, that, that command and control culture, which to be honest I think was far too prevalent in workplaces across Australia until far too recently, and I don't know to uh, the listeners out there, but possibly we've all had one in our career, you know, that command and control where they just want to invoke a style of my way or the highway, they invoke fear in their staff, they don't allow any consultation or any feedback about what works and what doesn't work. And so, of course, as a result, there's no creativity, people are not innovative, people are basically, you know, scared about losing their jobs even, and it just creates a whole terrible spiral of... Mm low morale, low discretionary effort, or on the other hand, people, you know, virtually, you know, killing themselves and ending up on burnout. Mm. 
and ending up leaving the business anyway. So that real command and control, my way or the highway, and I don't care how, how much time or energy or you know human lives it costs, we're going to get this thing done. That's a really problematic type of uh, management style. Do you see much of that these days, Grevis? Is It seems as though it's the kind of thing that's dying out with, with everything else that our community hopefully, is civilising yes. <laughs> past. Well, hopefully, yes, although dare I say it, I still do see in our work at WorkLogic, confidentiality applies, some work sectors and some environments where that command and control, that sense of fear, that sense whereby I suppose if I can, can I quote Voltaire or Spider-Man? What would you prefer? Oh, Voltaire, much more. Voltaire. All right, there we are. So, well, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. And I suppose what I'm saying with these types of managers is it's really just a misuse and abuse of power. Yeah. And completely unemotionally unintelligent individuals. And yes, not, you know, hopefully not every day of the week do we come across that type of um, behavioral style. But sadly, we do from time to time come across that. At the other end of the spectrum, what we come across at the other end is actually people who are completely avoidant about any sense of directiveness or control of the group or realizing, you know what, we need to get back on track, guys. Or Mm. actually, here's the vision. And yeah, what are you doing over there on a frolic of your own? We actually do need to get this. You know, done now, it's important and urgent. Yeah. Where managers don't have the skills or even the, the spine, uh, spar, the spine yeah. to actually say, I need to call this out, I need yeah. to, we need to actually call it and get on with it, that can lead to a very avoidant, laissez-faire type of um, approach. And that sends a lot of really mixed messages to the staff, which is, oh, well, I don't really need to do this if I can go off and do something else or I can start being snitchy or whatever it might be or, you know, becoming a bit um, less uh, focused on my work than I need to be because I know the manager just won't simply – call it out or they're clearly not that concerned about it because I'm seeing other people behaving this way and they're not calling it out for them. So that can create a very much a culture of a laissez-faire, avoidant uh, situation where really the the manager is asleep at the wheel and wonders why productivity is low, wonders why people in a sense sometimes (laughs) are having a They don't wonder. They know. (laughs) Well, yeah, they know and yet- They can't face it though. Yeah, and they can't face, and possibly why they can't face it is possibly sometimes personality defect, which is they need to be liked at all costs. Yeah, and or possibly more oftenly, oftentimes, more they oftenly, are, more like oftenly, it. there we are, oftenly. I do love a good uh, adverb. Basically, the other reason they tapped on the shoulder is often because they were the technical yeah. widget maker yeah. and they were there for a good while. And doing they said, it. You know what? We'll yeah. give you a hoist up into the next uh, role. Yeah. We'll make you the team leader, and, and you'll you just be you'll be great. So um, reluctant manager type. Absolutely, hey. and or not, and not given the skills to realise actually, yes, you were great at making the widgets, but now you're in a different role, yeah. and you need to understand that it's no longer about, as you said before, even more so, technical skills. It's about your emotional intelligence. It's about vision. It's about charisma. It's about inspiring the group. It's about being able to know when to call it and holding people to account for inappropriate mm. behaviour. And as some of the, the leader, some of the coaching we've done of managers who are who are, are really struggling in that management role admit to us, you know, obviously in a confidential um, setting, that frankly they just love the technical work but accepting a management role was the only way they could progress in the business and the only way they could be promoted. So sometimes these are people who who just love the technical work and have somehow found themselves you know, in their 40s or 50s all of a sudden where 80% plus of their time is spent managing others and in fact they don't really enjoy that but they're not quite sure how to admit that to themselves or t- to say that to the employer because they recognise that they've accepted a role that they're just not cut out to perform. Oh, look, that's a really interesting discussion all in itself, that that uh, that paradigm around technical skill advancing mm. to leader or manager. You know, just the, the idea that that's often the way organisations and industries promote, 
which is a mistake, obviously. It's it's not acknowledging the special skills required to be a great leader or a or a good manager. And it's also an, a, another thing from the employee's point of view, assuming that we all have this ambition to climb up the ladder. And it actually takes a bit of courage from someone to say, you know what, I, I actually just like doing what I'm doing. So I'm going to keep getting better at this technical skill, but don't assume that I want to manage people who are doing that technical skill Let's have a conversation about me continuing to be the technician. That's a, a really important point. Hey, Grevis, I was going to ask you, when mm. we talked about those first two, which I love, by the way, the, the, mm. the two ends of the spectrum, command yep. and control and the avoidant spineless type, who's mm. more toxic to a workplace? I think they're both damaging, mm. but I would suggest that the most, the more um, problematic is the command and control because of the sense that that actually causes claims and reality of bullying mm. because bullying is repeated unreasonable behavior likely to cause a risk to health and safety well someone who's being avoidant and not stepping in to deal with issues may or may not be encouraging or assisting other individuals to behave badly yeah. but i suppose when it's the person who's in the position of authority who's the team leader who is them who are themselves behaving unreasonably that's really you know quite a problematic situation and um you know can certainly lead to to much uh, psychological harm for those individuals concerned and also on a more um, organisational level lead to a whole range of consequences such as productivity risk, mm. um, uh, reputational risk, all sorts of other Burnout, issues. That- health, mental oh, well, health issues, all those things. And, and Absolutely. I, I just intuitively kind of agree with you on that. I've done no research but mm-hmm. the, the command and control you're just imagining is sucking the oxygen out of the place and doing all sorts of damage, whereas at least under an avoidant leader or manager, it still leaves this time and space and oxygen for someone else to step up and be the leader without yes. a title, whereas that can't happen in a command and control environment. But I have seen that happen where the where the, the manager, the person on top of the hierarchy is weak as water, someone else below them steps up and almost becomes the the pseudo leader of the of the organization or of the team. Yes, may become the de facto mm. leader. And and if the team themselves, the team itself is not thinking or acting ethically, sometimes you can actually get the reverse, which is upward bullying. Mm. So 10% of all bullying is upward, 20% is collegiate, although a very funny word to use, but you know, peer-to-peer, mm. and 70% of bullying is from supervisor to a staff member. So sometimes Within certain places, I suppose, where there's a lack of respect for the the team leader, and or they're not they're not able to exercise their authority appropriately, or they're new to the role, or they're resented by the team, or they're completely avoidant and clearly seem to be powerless to you know enforce discipline where needed. Mm-hmm. You might get some situations where the team itself comes together and actually starts making life very difficult for the the team leader. But I would suggest that there are other stressors there and other cultural factors too that affect that. If you look at some of the cases where upward bullying is occurring, it's often where there's remote sites of work, there's been a lot of churn, and there's been a, a whole sort of cohort of people in a team who've been left unaccountable for for bad behaviour in the past. Mm. So that's, of course, another factor, of course, in our number of 12 factors, I thought you'd call that you know, when bad behavior goes unchecked, chapter two. So sometimes these, there we are, nice segue. Uh, so sometimes these uh, these factors don't exist in isolation. Often you'll get a, a cluster of them, um, not just one, but a whole cluster often will, will, will cling together in a pathology that we're often then chop it in to try and make sense of and assist the organization to improve. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book is it's, it's actually quite rare that there's only mm. one of these 12 things yeah. going on yeah. because quite often it's either, for example, a laissez-faire manager who's not guiding the team at all, 
you've got one toxic personality in the team who's behaving very badly and no one's calling them on that behavior, that's infecting the whole culture of the team, mm. you know, in, in ways that sort of starts to move everybody in, in a toxic direction. And so sometimes um, there's quite a combination of these that are going on. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, so Grevis, I'm going to ask you the impossible question to answer in two minutes before we move on to Rose's pet. How do you fix this? I mean, I know that's a ridiculous question to ask until you've got two minutes. How do you fix bad management? Give us your principles, at least the the underpinning concepts that guide you when you when you've come across a terrible manager. Absolutely. Well, we've identified three key things you need to get involved Great. with. When, three is a good yeah, number. We love three. Yeah. So the countdown begins. So basically, first of all, train the manager to be able to get in there and have a difficult conversation. So stop the avoidance, skill them up, make them confident so that they can understand the principles and the practice of how to intervene and have appropriate conversations so you've got everybody on track, whether it's about a behavioral issue or whether it's about you know a project or a process issue or a, a priority of work issue. So certainly get that happening and that will enable the uh, team leader or the manager to take action through conversations Great. and often that will help also address unhealthy conflict. Certainly as well, encourage, I suppose, if there's an avoidant manager particularly, feedback and making sure that feedback is no longer seen as some sort of verboten thing and that people can therefore give and receive feedback both by the manager but also from the staff to the manager. Right. And there's look a bit of a grab bag here, but overall we've called it developing leadership and management. And that's really a whole range of things, which is about getting the manager to be truly present, mm. reflecting on what they bring to the team in terms of their degree of emotional intelligence, yeah. walking the talk. So that if you've got values of an organization, actually think about, well, are you as the manager truly living those values? Are you an example and an exemplar of those values? And as well as anything else, being very clear about what your role is to yourself and also to your team. So being you know, ensuring clarity about why you're there and what the leader of the team is available and should be doing. So a bit of leadership training in that space as well. And hopefully across those different activities over time, as we know, 12 weeks to change a habit, three to five years to change a culture, you'll end up with a team leader who's much more able to act reasonably and uh, have insight into how their behavior is affecting and improving the team's productivity, morale, discretionary effort. Amazing. Well done, Grevis. You did an amazing job of that. It's telling me how to improve my manager in three minutes, two minutes. That was that was great. Three points. I like it. So it was train your manager to have difficult conversations. It was create a feedback loop, not just from manager to staff, from staff back to manager. And then it's to challenge your leader or the manager to be truly present and ask themselves that that most important question of all leaders why would anyone follow me? What is it that I bring to this team? Why am I sitting in the corner office on top of the hierarchy? That's what what is it that I've got to offer this team? That's that's great advice, mate. All right, now, Rose, tell us of those 12 dysfunctions or those 12 symptoms of dysfunction, what tickles your fancy? <laughs> oh, it's an embarrassment of riches here. <laughs> Isn't it just? Who wrote this book? It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's actually quite hard to choose between these 12, not because any of them are particularly pleasant, because they're not, but because they're all so very common mm. and because we've been working in this space for 11 years and we've seen all of these so many times. And in terms of what's a favourite, I mean, some of them 
a little bit easier to feel light about. For example, workplace romances when people get together at work and then break up and then this absolute barrage of conflict and, mm. and tears and, and recrimination and, <laughs> uh, and dare I say, sometimes sexual harassment and bullying and other things on social media, et cetera, all sort of flow. But And the, the, it's not that I think that's fun or, or easy to, uh, fun. to handle if that's in your workplace, but at the same time it's a little bit less toxic mm. than some of the others. For example, bad behaviour going unchecked or having a really nasty skeleton in the closet, as we've called it, which is a historical issue that has been causing trauma to the team for many years and that nobody's been brave enough or supportive of the team enough to help them work through it. Um, but the one that I'm going to talk about this evening... But you are going to choose. Oh, that's good. I'm right. going to choose. I can choose. Great. Uh, is no clarity, no accountability, the path to complete chaos. Right. And the reason why I'll that? choose that one is a recent case that we've worked on because of this issue of no clarity and no accountability, it allowed about five of the other issues to creep in. And right. however, it's we could gateway. still solve it. It was, it was, it was. And sometimes I think no clarity, no accountability allows people who are a bit toxic, nasty personalities, high conflict people, predators, um, or other, some of the other nastier sides of human nature can really flourish because nobody's holding anybody accountable yeah. either for what they're producing or um, how they go about it. And so when we say in the book, no clarity, no accountability, what we're talking about is clarity for what we're each here to do as individuals. Yeah. And, and that's very, in terms of what are we actually being employed to produce, yeah. as well as how we're expected to do that in terms of how we go about it. So the what is unclear in terms of what we're producing, but also how we go about it and also to whom we're accountable. So one of my pet peeves is a dotted line for reporting <laughs> yeah. or having two – sometimes people have two managers yeah. where they're supposed to report half yeah. of their job to one person and the other half of their job to another person. Now, I have seen that work sometimes, mm. but it what it allows by having that blurriness around how you're spending your time and what you're accountable to produce and who's keeping an eye on you – is as I said, it does allow people who might not be 100% ethical, not have a good work ethic. Slip between um, the cracks. Not, absolutely. Mm. And they abuse the fact that nobody's really paying attention or that nobody's exactly sure what they're supposed to be doing at any time, such that there's always a reason for why they haven't met one manager's or the other's expectations or why they haven't quite produced what someone thought they might have been producing. And what carrying a person like that can do is send a message to all the good performers in the team yeah. that the organization doesn't really value good performance, that you can get away with yeah. not trying. Yeah. And for those people who are ambitious and who do care about the quality of the work, they become incredibly discouraged. They don't feel valued and they usually self-select and leave. Yeah. And there was some research done some recent Harvard Business School research, uh, it was found that it costs a business more than $15,000 US to keep a toxic person or a chronic underperformer in the team. And that the main reason for why that extra cost is incurred is from the departure of good staff. Yeah. Because yeah, if, no if, you, if you're a really good performer and you're looking around the team and sloppiness is allowed, people are getting away with murder. Why would you stay? You're yeah. going to go somewhere where you're valued okay, yeah. and where the extra effort and skill that you're putting in and that extra 10% discretionary effort is actually rewarded. Hey, Rose, so what, we, why do managers, well-intentioned, skilled, intelligent, professional leaders and managers have such difficulty 
calling people on underperformance, whether it's underperformance in terms of the work they're producing or their behaviour? I think there's probably three reasons Great. that I'll pick out. Love one, three. Grevis is three. <laughs> we love an odd number. So Grevis has already mentioned one, which is a lot of managers don't like to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Because it feels like conflict, it feels personal, because most people at their heart, apart from unless you're a psychopath, you, you want to be liked. Yeah. And so sitting down with someone and having that conversation where you say what you're you know, in, not in these words, but what you're doing is not good enough. Mm. And this is what I need you to do by this time to this standard. And this is what's going to happen if you don't is a pretty awkward conversation, particularly if you've built up social relationships with those people. They might even be your friends. Yeah. So I think number one is a reticence and a lack of skill in having um, difficult conversations. I think the second one is that an underperformer is relatively easy to carry. Okay, because uh, they don't do a whole lot of damage. Yeah, compared to how co- awful it is to have the conversation. So people are doing this sort of mental weighing up of of having a difficult conversation as opposed to carrying them in the team. They are. And, and the cost, cost of carrying them is the organization's cost of paying mm-hmm. their salary. Yeah, yeah, right? sure. So I think that that is the second factor. Yeah. And the third is that the damage that the underperformer is doing to the rest of the team is relatively hidden mm-hmm. because just as the manager isn't that keen to sit down with the underperformer and say, look, it's not going so well and what are we going to do about it? Similarly, the colleagues of the underperformer, because in Australia we don't like a dobber, mm. the colleagues are unlikely to go to the manager and say, look, Su Yin over there is an underperformer and it pisses me off <laughs> and it makes me feel undervalued yeah. and, it's not it, happen. and happens they're very not going to do it. Yeah. Well, right? I bet, so I bet it does got- happen, but it would take a very brave person who feels secure in their role to do that, someone who is, is brave because right. it's, it's so against the grain of not just Australia but – Sticking your neck out in any organisation, I think, is just really difficult for people to do. That's right. I think it's easier in some organisations mm, no where doubt. someone's performance is very easily able to be judged on a quantitative level. Yeah. So, you know, for example, sales or, you know, literally how many widgets are you producing? You know, and if that's obvious to everyone, it's, it's much harder to hide the underperformance yeah. and the impact that that underperformer is having on the production that the team is creating is more obvious. Look, I love your 12 folks and we're going to have to wrap it up soon because we're almost out of time. But can I just hit you with questions, a couple each or one each, and just give me one or two sentence responses? Is that okay about the other 12? Because I love them. I wish we could talk about all of them. All right. Tell me yes or no, whoever wants to answer this. Workplace romance, yes or no? If it's consensual and people understand that they need to think about if it's consensual, Grevis, of course. <laughs> of course there's a no to <laughs> no. non-consensual well, romance. funny you should say that. Well, <laughs> well, I'm just, you can tell I'm an ex-lawyer, can't you? I'm just going to make very clear, I'm very clear, Dave. I'm talking about non-consensual. Consensual, consensual workplace romance mm. is fine. Yep. <laughs> but but, but everything that you talked about before, and and my, my reflex would have been, yeah, it's fine, adults. But then everything you talked about before about breaking up and staying in the same place and the online presence that we all have now that just makes everything so much more complicated, I was kind of half bracing for you to say it's not okay. No, no. Well, you have to. Well, see, unlike uh, Malcolm Turnbull and his bonking ban um, earlier this year, in fact, you can't stop employees from Mm. engaging in lawful sexual activity under discrimination law. Of course. But I thought as a a, a sort of a team consultant, you were to say, well, ideal not to have that going on. Well, look. I'll say, I'll put it this way. It's simpler for managers if it's not yeah, going on. Yeah. 
But if it is going on, yeah. which is, as I said, entirely their right, yeah. the trick is to manage conflict of interest yeah. and the perception of conflict of interest yeah. because and that is very, very hard. And we love fairness in Australia. Yeah. So anything that looks a bit unfair, looks a bit like favoritism, yeah. we'll get everybody else offside. So, so that's so, why there's no simple yes or no to that. So question. the answer is yes, but it's got to be transparent. And it's got to be something that's not hidden and everyone's every, everyone's got to know about it. So there can't be these murmurings of favoritism and in whatnot. If it's out in the open, it's okay because everyone's an adult. But if there's these undercurrents of potential favoritism and dissatisfaction mm. by others, is that where the problem comes? It is primarily. Mm. And I'll also add that we've, over the last year, had more requests from organisations to help them develop a policy about workplace yeah. romance, which I know sounds very heavy-handed. Yeah. But what they're trying to do Since is make sure- politics thing? Uh, look, that might may well be part of it. Yeah, but right. another part of it, I think, is a recognition that where there's a significant power imbalance, yeah. for example- a university professor and a junior um, student who's, say, doing um, a master's by yeah. research. Yeah. You know, there's such a power imbalance, imbalance in yeah. some of the situations like that yeah. that it's even more important that the um, person with the power understands that they might inadvertently be putting pressure on someone more junior for a sexual or romantic relationship that the junior person doesn't feel able to say no to. All right, last so, question. I love it. Yep. Your, your responses are great. You're both very good at this. Last question, toxic personalities, what's the most common we come across? Who is out there ruining more teams than anyone else in Australia when it comes to caricatures? Narcissists would be high up there in some uh, industries. Mm -hmm. Narcissists, good. Definitely. Yep, can wear that. And antisocial personalities as well. Yeah, right. And who engage in real undermining, really manipulative bullying, which is one-to-one behind the scenes when there's no witnesses. Often there's a there's gossip yeah. that they engage in and creation of of factions yeah. and silos, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's incredibly undermining of yeah. the managers because a lot of that is about the building of power plays and social relationships that the managers find it very very hard to intervene in. Yeah, great. Look, like I said earlier, I could talk to you guys for another hour. This is really fascinating <laughs> stuff. These twelve are they're just so juicy, and as you say, they overlap. Very few situations have just one of these problems. There's all sorts of things going on and we are human beings and human beings make up teams and that's why there's so many dynamics, so many dimensions to them that all these things spill out from time to time. And as managers and leaders, we need to know how to recognize them and obviously we need a toolkit so that we can start addressing them and and leading our team through to good health. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. I've enormously enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad, Dave. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. And that was Rose Bryant Smith and Grevis Baird. I love talking about teams because they're such a fundamental part of our working lives. As Rose and Grevis pointed out, we take all of our human qualities into our team dynamics, the good ones and the bad. The 12 situations that lead to team dysfunction they describe in their book are spot on. They're so real. We've all seen them before and sadly, many of us will see them again. But for some reason, it makes it all the more manageable to know that these problems are not ours alone. They're shared by many teams across all industries at all levels. 
As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Rose and Grevis on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.